0: Welcome along this morning. Uh, For those on live stream, my name's Rick. Uh, It's great to be able to gather together, isn't it? And can I encourage you to have a Bible that you can look at that passage on from Luke? How would you be if I got up here now and said, you brood of vipers? If you don't... Who who brought you to church this morning, you mongrels? Basically, i why do you think you should be right with God? You you could you're gonna be cactus in a moment. God's Messiah's coming. Um, I wonder who'd be here next week, uh, if I did that um or the week after uh, like uh, we like to sit here thinking oh well rick must mean someone else but when you're the last one sitting there and i'm talking to you still what would you be thinking now if you had been a faithful baptist or anglican or whatever calathumpian that you've been associated with in the past and someone uh, and you you've been coming to church all your life and the guy at the front gets up and says you brood of vipers how do you think you're going to react well, we get to Luke chapter 3, as we've just had read. We've spent seven weeks in, John's, in Luke's gospel, sorry. I get the right gospel. Um, Jesus hasn't preached a sermon or healed anyone. In fact, uh, the last time we heard of Jesus, he was 12 years old. And, and at that time, we read that he was growing in wisdom and stature and in favour with God. And that messes with our heads because we're thinking, isn't he God's son? Wasn't he already in favour? And I hope you're starting to wrestle with that idea. Um, we get to Chapter Three, though, and the story shifts don 't we? Uh, Luke has been um, begun into his his account into the life of Jesus right at the very beginning by not talking about Jesus but by talking about Zechariah and Zechariah receiving from an angel uh, a, an announcement that he 's going to have a kid, and that kid 's name is John, and John is the one that God is going to send to prepare people for the Messiah. So it's roughly, and uh, it's around 27 to 29 AD now when John chapter 3 kicks off. Sorry, Luke chapter 3, I'll get that right eventually. Maybe we should just go to the book of John. No, we won't. Uh, uh, John has grown up. Uh, We know Zip about his his upbringing, although we know he's coming from the wilderness, and that could be just sort of like, Jep's Cross used to be the wilderness in Adelaide. You know, um, if you're a teacher, a country posting at Jep's Cross. Uh, So John, let's say he's over 25 years old. I won't bother pinning down a date because that's irrelevant. Um, And Luke tells us that the word of God came to John. um, When he was in the wilderness. And then John went out with this word of God. All over the countryside around the around the Jordan, and what was he doing? He was preaching a baptism for the, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, you might want to me to pick a more precise date of uh, exactly when it was that John kicked off doing this, because really Luke gives us an awful lot of cross referencing of. When was this happening and what, who was doing what at the time? But lo- one thing Luke doesn't give us is actually ha- um, the way he uses his dating system, which particular dating system he's using, if I could put it that way. And so this is roughly the time period, um, and it doesn't really matter to the outcome of the what John's doing. So for those of you who'd like a more precise date because you think Luke gives it to us, he doesn't actually. But that's not important. What Luke tells us is that John is doing what Isaiah said he would do, which is what the angel told Zechariah he would do. He's announcing the coming of the Messiah. But he's not just announcing the coming of the Messiah, he's telling people to be ready. Prepare your heart because when the messiah turns up what did Simeon tell say when Jesus was that young he was presented in the temple you know over over 8 days and roughly around 30 days on he's going to expose the hearts of people and not everyone's going to like him not all the Jews will like him the people of god and John is saying be ready because the messiah is coming Make sure your heart is ready for the salvation that he offers. Well, what is the message that John is speaking? Maybe it's the first turn or burn sermon they've ever heard. Verse 7, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, just so you can be really certain that you understand what it John is saying, you, brood of vipers, is saying you sons of the serpent. Now, what imagery, if you know the history of God's people, does that conjure up? You're agents of Satan, and that's surprising, isn't it That's offensive, possibly, but it's surprising. Why is it surprising? How could they be sons of the serpent when they're children of Abraham? They are the people of God. They understand that the Messiah was going to turn up to rescue God's oppressed people. They expected that to be good news for them as God's people, as children of Abraham And very bad news for those people that are not God's people. You know, those terrible Gentile type people. They expected God's wrath to come, but they didn't expect God's wrath to come on them. Because they are God's special people. They're Anglican or Baptist or Calathumpian. And they are warned that God's wrath will fall on them unless they repent. That's the first surprising thing. Another surprising thing to do with John's message is that he calls on people to get baptised as an outward sign of their repentance for the, of the forgiveness of their sins. And baptism, by the way, is not just churchy things. Uh, it's not specifically Jewish. It's not, in fact, a number of religions would have practised baptism. And if you're a Jew, you didn't bother need you didn't need to get baptised because that was a right for Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. To be people who adopted in as followers of Yahweh. And if you're a Jew by birth, you weren't thinking I need to get baptized ever. You're already God's people. That's surprising that John would speak to a bunch of people who are Jews, who claim to be children of Abraham, that they need to be baptised. How'd they respond? Blunt message, isn't it? Let me tell you, I think it's a surprising and quite amazing response. Their response is to ask, what do we need to do to prepare? What do I need to change in the way that I live? That's a great response, isn't it? That's what John the Baptist would have loved to have seen. Now, I'm not saying that that's all of the way that people responded or the only way that people responded. Luke is just recording how the crowd responds. Some of them may well have got angry. How dare you? How dare you say that having Abraham as our father is not enough? How dare you say that I've been here in this church all my life. Of course I'm a Christian. How dare you say that? My fruit is better than your fruit. You have no idea how much fruit I produce. How dare you say that to me? And I'm not talking about being, growing orchards and having orange trees. You can imagine some of them justifying themselves. They were good people. They were genuine Aussies. How dare John call them to repent Especially When it's Gentiles Who need to repent Not us Jews I'm sure there were responses like that But Luke Doesn't record those Luke tells us of three Really positive responses and I think There's some great challenges in these Three positive responses for us Verse 10 the crowd The crowd Asked what should we do then and John's response is to call on them to be generous with what they have and to share it with those who don't have what they need. Ah, Food and clothing are the two examples that he gives. You see, if they were serious about their relationship with God, they would share what they had with those who didn't. Verse 12. Tax collectors ask tax collectors come to be baptized who would have thought of that who would you consider to be the worst sinners well tax collectors were considered by people of this time by Jews of this time to be traitors to God's people and they repented and they asked what do we need to do to change They got baptised and they asked, what do we need to do to change? And John's response was just simply to tell them, don't collect more than what's required. The moralists, of course, amongst the Jewish people would have been saying, no, John, no, 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 no. you should have said your job is an abomination before God. No, he doesn't say that, does he? See, collecting taxes is pretty normal. Collecting taxes for Romans is not ungodly. Ripping people off is ungodly. Don't make a tidy profit for yourselves on top of what the Romans wanted you to collect. John says, if you're going to take following God seriously, stop ripping people off. And the soldiers, verse 14, they respond to John's call to repent and seek forgiveness and be baptised. No, I I think I imagine them as Jewish soldiers because Luke seems to include them in that lot that says we are Abraham's uh, children. And if they were Jewish soldiers, they would have been working either in Herod's army as his police force, or they might have been part of working with those tax collectors collecting money because sometimes people needed some gentle persuasion to hand over the money that was being collected. It doesn't actually matter which one and it actually doesn't seem to matter even whether they were Roman or Jewish or Gentile and Jewish, but most likely Jewish. And John says to them, if you want to take following God seriously, stop extorting money from people and accusing them falsely. Be content with your pay. Now, tax collectors and soldiers, you can still be tax collectors and soldiers as long as you do it in a God-honoring way. And remember... The bosses of the tax collectors and the bosses of the soldiers didn't give two hoots about God, remember? I'm sure that'll get us asking a few questions afterwards, but think through what it means for you and me to live in a God-honouring way. Well, now, we don't actually know whether these guys did anything that John advised them to do, they just asked the question. We don't know whether they changed in response to what John said. But what we do get to see is an insight into what God-honoring living looks like, don't we? We're going to come back to that in a moment. Before we do, I want us to take want to take us to a little bit more of what John says. So John knew the crowds came to see him and expected great things from him, and John knew that they were thinking he was the Messiah. He was actually there to prepare people's hearts for the Messiah. He wasn't the Messiah. Everyone was eager for the Messiah, and John seemed pretty impressive. But John corrects their wrong understanding. Look at verse 15. The one who is coming, the one who I'm here to announce, is far more important than I will ever be. Now John sort of quotes a a rabbinic saying uh, that said, the rabbinic saying said, every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosening of his sandal thong. You know, I'm I'm wanting to learn from my teacher. I'll do anything for you that a normal slave would do for his master but I'm not going to untie your thong on your sandal. And John sort of quotes that, that and says, well, I'm not worthy. It's not a matter of not going to. It's I'm not worthy. That's how important my master is, the one that I come to announce and prepare your hearts for. And John says this of the one who's coming. He will baptise with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, I don't know whether you've read enough of who Jesus is, but I don't see him ever baptising with fire, not literal fire. And we know that except for the disciples getting the Holy Spirit, no one gets the Holy Spirit in any permanent way until Acts. And by then, Jesus is skedaddled back to heaven. So what does he mean? Has Luke forgotten what Jesus is doing? Is John's message slightly twisted? What is John saying about the one who is coming? I think what John's message is doing is pointing... God's people, to a passage or a section of God's word that they would have known really well. Not just one section, but you could go to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, verse 25 and verse 26, and it speaks of God's spirit being poured out on people. John is preparing them for the fact that when this Messiah comes, the prophecies of the Old Testament will be fulfilled among you and you will receive God's spirit. Poured out on everyone. But also John says, when this Messiah comes, there will be fire. It's a picture of judgment that he goes on to expand. Verse 17, the wheat and the chaff. We just buy a bag of wheat these days. But there's a process before that happens where you've got to separate the wheat out of the the kernel. You get rid of the chaff. Of course we wouldn't dare burn it today, but that's really the imagery it's picking up on. Let's get rid of the stuff that's not needed by burning it and keep the stuff that is needed. That is really what we grew the crop for. It's a picture of God's people being gathered and the people that are not God's people being burnt. It's a picture of judgment. It's that turn or burn sermon, isn't it? How would you react to a eternal burn sermon? Uh, Some of us have grown up loving that sort of stuff. Sorry, Uh, you're not going to get it necessarily. I might tell you you'll burn every so often. But that's really not the best way to communicate God's word to people today. But what do you think of judgment? What do you think of God's judgment? Do you understand really that the people who are not followers of God will not be in heaven? They are literally going to be in hell. And Luke tells us that John's message to these people is good news. It's encouraging to hear, and yet we say, I don't want to ever hear a sermon like that. I'd find a different church if you preach like that, Rick. Strange to our ears, isn't it? Why is it good to hear that people will will one day face judgment if they don't follow Jesus? Why does the gospel that is good news for people to hear, why must that message also include that God's wrath is going to be poured out on people, all people who don't respond? Well, if you know what God is going to do, you get the opportunity now to change your response to Jesus, to the Messiah. And that's why it's good news, isn't it? There's no point finding out when you stand before the judgment seat of God that you're cactus. That's too late. It's better to find out that you will be cactus and you can change. Being ignorant of God's judgment does not change the fact that God is still going to judge well, we're going to press the pause button there and at least pause and say, what does any of this have to do with us today? Because you are not in the in, around the Jordan and I am not the Mes- announcing the coming of the Messiah. Well, remember, Luke's big purposes. It's worthwhile just keep reflecting on this as we work through Luke's gospel. Because Luke tells us what his purpose is. He wants us to be able to clearly see who Jesus really is. And before you just say, oh, well, I know... Take the time to read and pick up on what he's saying. And let me just show you, Luke chapter 1 verse 17, John is, we're told this is what John's role will be, is to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. In the same chapter, Luke chapter 1 verse 76, we see that the, John's role is to prepare people, sorry, John is a prophet of the Most High and his role is to prepare people for the coming of the Most High. Who's Jesus? Who who is Luke saying Jesus is? Well, John puts it this, John's gospel, sorry, puts it this way. The word became flesh, God became flesh and dwelt among us. And Jesus has come as the son of God in all his divinity and he has come and lived amongst us. And yet we've seen that he's gone through all of the rituals of humanity. He has taken on humanity humbled himself become like us in every way so that he could fulfill what you and I could not when you understand who Jesus is like Theophilus you'll be prepared to follow Jesus no matter what the cost it will cost you to follow Jesus We are not embarking on a walk in the park. Let me tell you, it'll cost you a lot more to walk away from him. And that's what John reminds people of here. The second thing I think is worthwhile at least asking ourselves is, or picking up from this passage, is to ask ourselves, what famous Christian people in my past am I relying on to get me to heaven? Of course we want to say none, but... Who are your famous Christian relatives? I don't really have any famous Christian relatives. Just imagine that I had, let's say, Billy Graham. Um, he he was, was my dad. There you go. He's not, by the way. Just imagine. How does Billy Graham being my dad help me on Judgment Day? Well, not 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 one iota. Now, he, as a dad, he can point me to Jesus. He has a role in preparing my in pointing me to Jesus. But I can't get before the judgment seat of God and say, listen, Billy's me dad. Or neither can I say, Abraham's my dad. You see, this passage reminds, John reminds the people, he reminds us, that one day we will stand before God's judgment seat on our own, regardless of who our famous Christian relatives might have been, or not so famous Christian relatives. See, you need to do your business with God. You can't claim that my grandfather's brother was a minister or some piece of rubbish like that. The third thing I want to raise from the passage, possibly the most challenging part I find, I don't know what you'll find, but I certainly... is is that what John accuses these people of is that they don't produce fruit in keeping with repentance. What John wants them to do, if they're serious about God, if they want their hearts prepared for the coming of the Messiah, is to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, real repentance indicates that there'll be real change in your life. You can't just claim to say, I will follow Jesus and change nothing. It was like that for the Old Testament people, like that for us as God's people today. Philippians chapter 1 verse 27, live lives worthy of the gospel. Now I'm not saying, this passage is not saying, John is not saying that you get to heaven by being good. He's not saying that if you can achieve a certain level of morality, then God's people will accept you in. God will accept you in. But he is saying that if you claim to be sorry for your sin, if you claim to live with Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then that will change how you live. It'll change what you do. It'll be evident in your lives as you struggle against sin. We'll struggle with different sins, won't we? but we'll be struggling against sin and here's my challenge to me and to you i think the passage's challenge is are we people who produce fruit in keeping with repentance what sins are you fleeing from how seriously are you flee how seriously are you fleeing from them What sins are you struggling against? And how serious are you struggling against them? Or do you fall into the trap of saying, well I know it's by grace so I don't have to give a hoot about trying. And John actually picks up on sins you and I might not have picked up on. Um, If you and I are being honest with ourselves, the sins that we most likely are going to pick up on are the sins that other people are doing, not the ones that we are doing. And John picks up on these sins of the God's people or those who claim to be God's people and he says, you're being selfish, you're not being generous. Man, how relevant is that for us as God's people today? Are you generous to people who don't even have the basics of life, food and clothing? He identifies their greed and our greed and their ability to exploit people and our ability to exploit people. How seriously are we are How seriously do we take producing fruit in keeping with repentance? Uh, Producing God honouring lives in keeping with the fact that we have been saved by grace through Jesus Christ alone. Now, when I hear a challenge like that, my defensive mechanisms go on. uh, And as I was preparing and thinking through this passage, I want to say, Well, I'm a generous person. I don't need to raise that. I'm actually quite a generous person if you ask me. Um, I give lots. Uh, What else do I do? Do I really go out of my way to actually give to people who have nothing? I'm not sure. What does it really actually mean for you to produce fruit in line with your repentance when it comes to this sort of challenge to be generous and willing to share? What does it look like for you and I? Uh, The last way I think this passage challenges us, if that's not enough, is just to remind us uh, that uh, verse 19 and 20, I haven't really touched, op- touched on this, uh, John rebukes Herod, and I think he, Luke records for us this rebuke of Herod here, just so he can just tidy off what happens to John. But he also, as he tidies off what happens to John, he reminds us that actually being rich and powerful, and I think Herod was fairly powerful, does not protect you from God's judgment. John rebuked, the soldiers and the crowd. He even rebuked the guy at the top of the food chain. Because when Jesus turns up, even the guy at the top of the food chain is going to be held accountable. He's the judge of everyone. Now, I don't think any of us think that we're at the top of the food chain. But do remember that God's judgment comes on everyone even good anglicans and baptists and calathumpians so what are you going to do from here well i guess i've hopefully given you a bit more information about the passage and you could call it quits there and say well i know roughly this is how old john was and roughly the the time date stamp when john kicked off but i think if we do that we've missed the point I think we, the danger is that we, pick, we miss what the challenge is from this passage. How does John's message, which is announcing the coming of Jesus, and we look back on the fact that Jesus has come, but how does John's message challenge you as you live for Jesus now? And if someone actually exposed the fact that you had drifted from following God, like I think John is doing to these people. If someone called you back to repentance and to following Jesus properly, how would you respond? How about I pray? Now, Lord now, God, as we gather as your people and read your word, Lord, we pray that it will do, your word will do what we were told it would do. Expose our heart. And Lord, as it does expose our heart, help us not to rationalise it away so that we just keep on doing the same old, same old. Lord, help us to be people that actually allow your word to cut us to the heart and change how we live. Yes, we are saved by grace. But Lord, as people saved by grace, help us to be people who take godliness seriously. We ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.